This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm so happy to have you with me as I uncork Kendra Petty's story. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And just a quick note on YouTube, it's been a very uh, powerful growth vehicle for our show. And it's also become a fun way for me to interact with the audience, as well as for fans of the show to interact with each other. So I encourage you to please subscribe to our YouTube channel by going to YouTube, searching for Uncorking a Story, and hitting that subscribe button. For you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Now, today on the show. We have an amazing story from author Kendra Petty. And as you listen to this deep and emotional conversation, you will really come to understand why Kendra chose to name her memoir, I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead. It's a very provocative name title for a memoir, but you'll understand why. And I'll give you just a, a Cliff Notes version of it here. You know, in a very vulnerable way, she discusses the emotional and physical abuse she felt from the hands of her mother at a very young age. She talks about the trauma of losing her brother in a very violent way. And, uh, you know, he was very young when, uh, when he died. She talks about the cult she was forced into after her mother remarried and how she broke away from that cult. And, and yes, even an attempt on her life by organized crime. Now, this is really the stuff that fiction writers like me have a hard time you know, just fathoming that that's something that this many issues can actually um, happen to someone in their life. Uh, but but it's a true story. Um, but but all of that stuff is isn't even the most amazing part of the story. The amazing part of Kendra's story is the fact that she's been able to heal 
from these traumatic experiences and tells me that a big part of her healing involved the writing process for this book. Now, she's very upfront about this. She did work with a ghostwriter. But over the course of a few years, you know, she had multiple conversations with this ghostwriter and found that while just talking about her life experiences, she started to feel better and she started to feel that she was healing inside. She also noticed that sharing her story on podcasts like this one also had a therapeutic effect. Um, and it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing, right? It's pretty amazing, this this power of writing. And, uh, you know, she, she told me that, you know, initially she was just getting this book down on paper for her. And she didn't intend to she didn't intend to share it with the world. And she had some very valid reasons for that. Uh, what you what you'll hear about in in her in her, my conversation with her um but in short she started to believe that she could help other people who have experienced similar traumas uh with her writing and that fueled a you know uh, not only some healing additional healing within her but but fueled a newfound purpose in her life so i want to remind you that my goal with uncorking a story is always to help make you a better writer and today's lesson is to never forget just how powerful writing can be. It will not only impact your life, but it could impact the lives of others. So that's enough for me. Now let's uncork Kendra Petty's story. Kendra Petty is a woman who has succeeded in an all-male industry, becoming an executive vice president at two firms. She's a dynamic public speaker, powerful negotiator, and dealmaker. She loves bouldering and scrambling in the mountains of California, Nevada, and Arizona, a voter for many years, Kendra also loves fast cars and traveling. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her life and memoir, I Can't Believe I'm Not Dead. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Kendra. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Very excited to be here. It's an honor. Oh, it's it's uh, my honor to host you on, uh, on Uncorking a Story, Kendra. I'm curious, where does your story as uh, an author begin? Well, my book is uh, a memoir. So it really was a lifetime in the making, starting from birth. Uh, it's a it's a very intense story. Um, it takes readers through not just childhood trauma and tragedy, but really a whole cycle of a lifetime of trauma, tragedy, PTSD, heartbreak loss, just a lot of insanity. Uh, some things that are really very unbelievable. It's a very uh, edge of your seat kind of read. Very quick read. It is intense, but it's a very quick read. But uh, through my childhood and then on into my adulthood uh, with just this very crazy life that I led and uh, the, the way it came about to put it into words on paper was uh, also a number of years in the making. I had a lot of friends that every time I'd share a story with them, they'd say, you have to write a book, you have to write a book. And I would push back and no, I don't have time. And uh, you know, who, who would read it anyway? But uh, as the years went on, about five years ago, I hit a wall, I guess, sort of mentally, emotionally with all that I had been through. And I re I I had to figure out why my life had just been this continuous crazy cycle of trauma and tragedy. So I really sought to understand. I sought to heal, started digging in, reading, uh, looking for ways to heal my heart, my mind, my body, my soul. And in that process, there was this voice that would not stop telling me, you have to write it down. You have to write the book. You have to write it down. And I fought it for a bit. And finally, I said, fine, I I'll do it. But I knew I couldn't do it on my own. Uh, I'm very busy. I travel a lot for work. 
uh, have, have a very busy life. So I actually hired a ghostwriter to help me. And it was a three-year process for this ghostwriter and I, a very long process, very intense, uh, but it, it turned into a, a great product. But when I originally hired her, I did tell her, I do not want to publish this. Uh, this is all very, very personal. Uh, it makes me way too vulnerable to put everything out there. I said, I just need all this insanity documented for me, for my family, maybe for a few friends. I just need it documented. But as we went along through the process, she's a published author. Uh, she's written a ghostwritten a number of books that have been published. She's worked for two of the big publishing houses, Simon & Schuster and Random House. So she really knows her stuff, and she kept pushing me through through the years to publish, and I kept pushing back. No, I don't want to publish. No, I don't want to publish. And towards the end of the second year, I, I finally said, okay, I will think about it. Uh, by the time we were in the beginning of the third year, I, uh, I finally agreed to, to publish it. And so we got to the end of the three years, and she helped me find a publisher, and we published it about nine months ago. Wow. So I I, uh, I do want to dig into your your process of working with the ghostwriter. Before I do, though, I you know, you mentioned like this voice inside your head that was coming to you saying, you've got to write this down. You've got to write this down. I've I've heard those voices before. Um, where, where was that coming from? Where do you think that voice was coming from? Uh, you know, my inner spirit. I think it was part of my healing process. I honestly did not realize how healing writing the book and going through that whole process of talking about it with Jessica, my, my ghostwriter, again and again, so many evenings, so many weekends that we would just talk through what happened. And then she would, we'd have more meetings and follow-up questions and we would have to dig in and then reading and rereading the book as we put, as we put it together and then editing it and re-editing it. It was three years of very intense, basically therapy. And so I really think it was just my inner spirit knowing that, that I needed to work through that process to help me heal. And even, even the, these things like this, these interviews, that's part of the healing process too. It, it's a continual uh, healing process. So, you know, the nice thing is, is I could have spent tens of thousands of dollars over decades on uh, therapy. And instead I squeezed it all in, <laughs> in a few years and I got very intensive therapy. So it was an incredible, incredible process. Well, I will, I will share that my, my first uh, career goal was to become a therapist and, um, I, I didn't, that didn't materialize the way I wanted it to. Um, but I'm glad to hear that the conversations like this are, are somewhat therapeutic and, yeah. uh, and helpful in, in your healing process. Um, what, what can you share with us about, you know, some of the trauma that you experienced? I mean, that, that kind of where, where this all, where this, where this story really begins. Sure. Uh, it begins in Oklahoma. I was born on a farm in Oklahoma, uh, raised in Oklahoma, not on the farm. It's still part of our family, but we left and moved around Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma uh, as, a, as a young child. We settled in a town called Lawton, Oklahoma. It's about half an hour from the Texas border, and that's where my family still is today. Um, my mother was always very mentally unstable and had mental illness, although back then, you know, getting getting diagnosis and medication and such was not as common or easy as it is today, especially in a place like Lawton, Oklahoma. Um, so my mother was already mentally ill, abusive, verbally, mentally, emotionally, and physically, um, could not control her anger and her temper, uh, and so was very violent. But when I was eight and my brother was 10, uh, he, was, he was my best friend, 
he was killed in an accident while we were together. Um, we were crossing a highway and he did not see a car uh, coming towards him. Uh, and I did see the car and it hit him. It was probably going about 70 miles an hour. And it was just a very violent, very gruesome death. And he died trying to protect me, trying to make sure I got across the highway safely. Uh, and he died and I did not. And that created just a tremendous amount of strife in my family. It made my already mentally ill mother go even madder. Uh, it, my parents didn't get along before. They really didn't go get along after that. I developed night terrors right away that lasted a lifetime, very violent night terrors that would cause me to run out of my home and my hotel room in the middle of the night and sleep. I'd wake up in strange places. That continued on into my adulthood. Through my healing process in the last five years, they've gotten much better. I don't have them near as often. Uh, but after my brother's death, my father left us, uh, which made my mother even angrier. So it really just broke our family apart, the, the death of my brother. Uh, my mother remarried, uh, and she married a man. She married the neighbor, her best friend's husband. Her best friend died of cancer about a year after my brother died. Uh, and so I inherited this new family with two new stepsisters. But through that process, my, my already very violent, very my, uh, mentally ill mother just continued to slip further and further and deeper and deeper into the abyss of mental illness and became more violent. She used to choke me till I would black out. Just severe, violent beatings, horrible beatings, uh, and just anger that she couldn't control. She, she would, if something would upset her and we're driving down the highway, she would try to jump out of the car. Uh, did this multiple, multiple, multiple times and just, you know, things like that. And even as she aged and got older, it even got worse as, as we became adults. She, she would act out and have these fits of rage and neighbors would call the police. And, uh, so, you know, my mother has just lived a very mentally tortured life. But when my, when my uh, mother and stepfather married, they started a church in her home that morphed into this very bizarre, very strange cult. Uh, and that, that led to even more abuse. Uh, things like we weren't allowed to go to the doctor because God will heal you. More physical abuse in the name of God. Uh, so I left, uh, I left Oklahoma after high school at 18 and moved to New York City, determined to leave all of that behind me. So that, that's really a summation a quick summation of the, the childhood trauma. Uh, and then that followed me into an adu uh, adulthood. And I uh, experienced quite a bit of trauma in my adulthood as well. Yeah. Well, now it's, it's very clear to me where you got the title of your book from. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, we're thinking here about my adulthood. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little nervous to hear about it, but um, yeah, because, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm reading this introduction and, and, you know, you, you are very successful. Um, so I'm curious, like, to how do we bridge that gap between this this childhood, which you know started off, you know, very challenging with your mother and her mental illness issues. Of course, the the big flashpoint being the the violent death of your brother, um, mm -hmm. and then of course, you know, the parents divorcing, and then marrying the neighbor, and then join, you know, not that you joined a cult, but forming a cult. You're you're part of a cult. Um, well, let's 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 jump into adulthood then. So, what happens when you leave at at eighteen? I I left and I moved to New York City. Uh, I worked three jobs to put myself through college. Uh, you know, I knew I never wanted to be the typical kind of 
Oklahoma girl where you graduate high school, maybe you go to college, maybe you don't, you get married, you have kids, stay in Oklahoma your whole life. That was absolutely not my intent or my desire. So I knew I wanted a career. I didn't know what kind of career, but I knew I needed to go to college. I was the first person to graduate from college in my entire family. Uh, so I moved to New York, worked a lot of jobs, went went to school in Manhattan. Uh, I graduated and I really just started focusing on building a career. I originally started a career in the fashion industry, didn't care for it. It really wasn't for me, uh, but I got tired of the cold weather in New York and I left for LA. I moved to LA, which is where I started in the industry that I'm in today. Tw 29 years ago, I, I started in this industry. So I've been in it a very long time and it's it's been very good to me. There's been some not so great things that have happened to me in it, but in general, uh, it's been a really good career. But I, I moved a lot for work. Um, the, the only way really, at least with the corporation that I was with at the time for the first 15 years of my career, the only way to move up the ladder was to geographically move. So I moved a lot. Uh, and I've lived all over the U.S., a lot of cities twice. And, you know, that was an incredible experience, but it came with a lot of sacrifice as well, always having to say goodbye to friends and different people that I knew in cities and having to start all over with my social network. Um, so that was that was tough, but it was all in the name of building my career. But I, I married a woman uh, that I, it, while I was in New York, I came out, realized I was gay and I came out uh, and, and really just, I, I, we weren't allowed to date in Oklahoma. There was no dating. There was no, we, this cult really sequestered us from the real world. We weren't allowed to watch TV or listen to the radio. Uh, read magazines or newspapers or associate with anyone outside of our little group. Um, we weren't allowed to go to friends' houses. We weren't allowed to go to the doctor. It was just a very all-encompassing religion that just kept us in this bubble. So it took me some time when I moved to New York to just really understand who I was. Uh, but you know, then I embraced it fully. I, I understood it. I accepted it. And, you know, began dating uh, for, for a number of years. I eventually met a woman that um, moved from Texas to Cleveland with me and then from Cleveland to San Francisco. In San Francisco, we got married. She had a daughter uh, who was seven years old. So I had a stepdaughter, but she had a hidden drug habit uh, and was an alcoholic. And because I was raised in this bubble, I really didn't understand drugs or drug addicts or alcoholism. I wasn't exposed to any of that, and I didn't participate in any of it as an adult. Uh, so it was very confusing to me. And so I thought she just had mental illness like my mother. And I would tell her, you know, either either you're mentally ill or you're, you're doing drugs. Either way, we need to get you help. And, you know, it was always a fight. No, I, I don't need any help. I'm fine. But she was extremely physically abusive, uh, broke my bones on a number of occasions. I have scars all over my body from her abuse. I had to have her arrested uh, it took me six years to unwind from that and finally move the girls back to Texas. And it, it broke my heart. It just broke my heart because, I, you know, I'd lived my whole adult life not wanting to get married, not wanting to have kids, really wanting to focus on my career. And then I meet this person and we end up getting married. And uh, I wasn't really excited about getting married, but it was very important to her and I wanted to make her happy. And then once we were married, I really came to appreciate how much she appreciated family and marriage. So then I became, I, I began to embrace it. Uh, and just as I was embracing it, things were falling apart. And it was a number of years of a struggle there to, to get out of that abusive situation. But on the heels of leaving that situation, I took the number two position uh, with a corporation 
that owned a group of smaller companies in my industry. Uh, I oversaw several of those companies. We were spread out nationwide in a lot of different cities. And during the first year of really trying to get my feet on the ground with this corporation, I started to see things that were were just very strange. You know, there's a lot of strife within the ownership. They were always trying to fire each other or sue each other. They hate. They all hated each other. Uh, you know, I had come from a publicly traded company where all our eyes are dotted, all our T's are crossed. There's processes, and um, everybody's very respectful to one another. And to then go to this smaller sort of family-owned uh, family, there's multiple families that owned it um, situation with all this strife was just really unsettling to me. But I just really kept my head down and, you know, we had acquired some companies. So I worked on merging those companies into our umbrella of companies. But as I did, as I really dug into the financials of these, comp these companies and the, th the practices, I, I began to, th to see things that I started to question, um, things that just did not seem above board. And it took me a, a little bit of time to uncover and really realize what was happening and as I started questioning and pushing back on these processes and these procedures, um, things really started going sideways for me at work, just really got bad. I discovered a listening device in my office and remnants of one in my car. So I realized that they were listening to me when I was having private conversations, not thinking they were listening to me. Um, and it just got worse from there. You know, once I discovered the listening devices, things just really went downhill uh, sort of the the um, the pinnacle of this uh, situation I was in was that they tried to kill me, and they put poisons in my house, in my home, in my car. I was unknowingly ingesting them, inhaling them every day, wearing them on my clothes, and I got very, very, very sick, very sick. I almost died, and from that, from being um, poisoned, led to other illnesses that I had to deal with as a result of being poisoned. Graves disease that I fought for well over a decade. Uh, I developed cancer seven and a half years after being exposed and the gestation period for cancer when exposed to chemicals is seven to eight years and I was diagnosed at seven and a half years. There's not a history of cancer in my family. Uh, so I told my friends several years after I got poisoned, I said, you know, if I ever get cancer, it's gonna be because of those poisons. Never thinking I would get diagnosed with cancer ever. Uh, but sure enough, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, I had to have a double mastectomy. I went through chemo, uh, reconstruction. But the after effects of chemo and from being poisoned and Graves' disease and chemo, just uh, it was so hard on my body. It just wrecked my body. And so I, I spent so many years just really focused on my career, continuing to build my career, but on my health and trying to stay healthy and try to figure out how to break free of pain and, and fatigue. So it has been a uh, a very long path and a very long journey. I you know I don't even know where to begin asking a follow up question um, just based on that. But I mean these these people who are trying to kill you. I mean this is like something out of I mean literally you know, you, you know we're here today to talk about your memoir. This is something out of a novel. Like I don't even know that that you know writers of fiction can could tell a story like this and have it be believable because it's just so much to throw at one human being. It, it really is, which is why I always preface that the book is an intense read. Uh, it can be emotional for some people. It's got a happy ending. 
Um, I'm not dead. That's the best happy ending. You know, they kill one of the CEOs is dead of that firm. He he did not make it. Uh, and so I feel very lucky, you know, and part of my healing process was, um, you know, writing the book, getting a daily reminder tattooed on my hand of lucky to remind me every day just how lucky I am to be alive and to be thriving in life, not just not just surviving. And I think that's such a big part of my message is that people get so st- they get stuck into survival mode and just focused on surviving. And then they can't get out of that. Even once they are a survivor, they don't, they're not able to move to the next level of learning how to thrive outside of surviving and outside of all their trauma and tragedy. So in my book, I I do talk about some of my healing process and take people through some of the steps I, I got to uh, from moving from just surviving to thriving in life. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about just the story you're sharing with me, and I and I do appreciate your vulnerability um, uh, while sharing it. You know, you, I, I could easily see. You know, of course, you could have been killed by you know your your employers, but you you could have also been killed by yourself too. I mean, you you could have you could have gone, and it would have been understandable to, to go into your own addiction at that point because. You know, you you come from a history. You know, your mother was mentally ill, mentally unstable. I, I don't know. You didn't mention any addiction issues there, but um, certainly that's the, you know, that's the the personality type that that is vulnerable to such things. But you know, your you were mentioning, you know, your um, your wife had addiction issues, and you know, she very much, you know, to me, the way you were talking about her sounded like you, you kind of married your mother in a way just with, with the abuse that um, she was giving you. And I know your mother was, was um, you know, you suffered physical and mental abuse at the hands of your mother as well. I mean, I, to, to me, you know, your book is, I, I can't believe, I can't believe I'm not dead. Um, I can't believe you, you're not an addict. Um, how did you escape? How do you think you escaped the that, that pitfall where so many people, because, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of addicts in my life, but how, how do you think you escape that pitfall? It, that's a good question. I think, you know, addiction is a disease, a disease that I thankfully was never touched with. I was also, you know, I talk about this with my father, uh, that we have a lot of mental illness in our family. There are a number of people that I call touched, if you will. Uh, and, and because we were so religious, there was never any drugs or alcohol in the house. So addiction was never it was just mental illness with with no addiction, uh, but also not willing to go to the doctor and get help and get diagnosed and get medicine because, again, God will heal. So, you know, we just lived through this life of pain and misery uh, growing up. But I I feel like, first and foremost, I was born with just this incredible inner strength, just a, a really strong inner strength. Um, second, I've always had the practice of never, never getting stuck in blame, never getting stuck in anger, never getting stuck in a woe ways me and a feeling sorry for myself, you know, trying to always move out of any toxic situation. And and yes, I, as an adult, as a child, you you can't help usually getting, getting into or out of toxic situations. Once I was 18, I left and never looked back. But as an adult, certainly my ability to recognize red flags and adhere to them and my ability to create boundaries was severely lacking, obviously, because I got into a relationship with someone and I, I stayed six years, even though I knew I needed to get out. Uh, and then the same situation with my work. You know, as I started seeing things unfold that were not right, 
rather than leave, I stuck with it for, th- I was there for three years. Uh, and the last year was really the, the worst. It's when I got poisoned and got sick and I did eventually leave. So I'm getting, I'm shortening my time frames. <laughs> of staying in toxic situations. But when I started my healing process five years ago, I really cleaned up my life. I, uh, I removed any, anyone in my life that had negative, you know, negative attitudes, negative energy. I had been shut down for so long out of fear, living in fear because I was, they tried to kill me and I didn't die. So I was always afraid they were going to come back after me, looking over my shoulder, always locking all my doors, looking out the windows, looking in the rearview mirror, just always being very aware of my surroundings. I didn't let people in my home for many, many, many years. I shut shut down my social media. I lived in fear. I stopped making friends as I moved to different places for work. I stopped making friends. I only associated with people that I knew from before that uh, before this had happened uh, because I knew I could trust them and that they might not be a a part of this. So I, uh, I really had had to make a big shift five years ago. And so the, the few people, the family members and friends that I did have that were toxic, I had to start really cutting those people off, removing those people in my life. And as I made new friends, if I came to see that they had negativity and a toxic personality, I had to move away from that as well. Really for, for me, selfishly, for part of my healing process. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say selfishly. Um, you know, the, the the ability to to set a boundary is something that we all. I mean, I know that's something I needed to work on for years is setting boundary around you know people around me who I would consider to be unhealthy. Um, right. Yet, yet sometimes we're so like trauma bonded with other people that we, for some reason, you know, there's a yin and yang thing happening, and and we stay and and we you know we. Um, yeah, and not necessarily just meaning romantic relationships. I mean, just friendships. You know, there are some friendships that, um, you know, should be, as my mother would say, 86th. Yeah, that's true. It's true. And uh, even family members who yeah. use some. Right. Yeah. Right. Even, so even, even as I got older and my mother, we had to eventually put her in a home uh, because she just couldn't function with her mental illness. Uh, and I would go see her when I would go to Oklahoma, but I really didn't want to because it just left me feeling horrible. So I eventually even stopped that. You know, I, I had to remove that from my life as well because it was just too toxic and you know, still is to this day. Is, is she still with us? I mean, is she still alive? She is. Uh, she is. We had to uh, put her in a home. It's been about six, 16 years, 15 years that she's been in a home. Uh, because with her me- mental illness, once her husband passed, she just couldn't function or take care of herself anymore. But um, she kept getting passed around from home to home because they said, this is not what we deal with. You know, they weren't mental institutions. They those really didn't exist anymore. Uh, and so she kept getting passed around because nobody wanted to deal with with my mother. But she has been in hospice for almost two years now. Wow. Um, they, they put her in hospice. It's called Failure to Thrive. But, you know, she kind of goes up and down, but they haven't pulled her out of hospice, but she's still alive. Wow. Um, I want to I want to dig into the, the writing process. And I know you were collaborating with a ghostwriter. And, you know, I, I think about your life story. And I know you mentioned having this voice in your head saying, you know, you've got to write it down. And this is kind of coming from from deep inside you. I, I could also just imagine the the trepidation to do so because when you're when you're doing so even when you're talking about it with somebody even if they're a stranger it's 
it requires vulnerability and but you're but you're also reliving it a little bit you know because you're you're bringing it back to the top of your conscious mind versus having it sort of suppressed and even when it's suppressed that's not a good thing either right because that leads to all sorts of nasty consequences and that's putting it lightly but were you nervous about starting the the writing process and sort of the consulting process for for the book um i was i i don't think i realized how hard it was going to be when i started and you know part of it is because i never talked about almost any of this to almost anyone i have friends that i've had been friends with for decades and they read the book and they said oh my god how how could we not know about all this and i so I never talk about it. Uh, so I, I was a bit nervous, but it was really once we started digging in and I realized how much I had to talk about things uh, that made it even harder. But for the first year, uh, well, really for the almost first two years, there wasn't that thought about me publishing. So I didn't have that weighing on me. Once I decided to publish, then that was a whole different ball game. It was a whole different weight on my shoulders for so many reasons. But for the first couple of years, it was just having to relive it and reread it and re-talk about it. And there are two stories in the book that I could not talk about. Um, and so we put placeholders in the book and continue to work on everything else in the book. And Jessica knew what they were, but we didn't get into the details. And she kept pushing me, especially towards the end. She's like, you know, we really got to get these stories in here. And I just couldn't bring myself to talk about them. And I, now that I've done so many interviews and I've talked about the book and I've done public speaking around the book, uh, I'm, I'm getting a bit more comfortable. But they were the story of my brother and the story of a babysitter who sexually abused me for about three years. Uh, and so I finally just sat down and took about a month, a month and a half, and wrote those stories myself and gave them to Jessica. And she didn't didn't edit them any. Uh, so if they don't read that well, that's my fault. But uh, so we put those in the placeholders in the book where they were. But so I, I kind of skirted around talking about some of the hardest pieces by just writing them myself. Yeah. How do you, how would you characterize the before and after? So if we're going back five years, you know, when, when you're beginning your healing journey to, to right now with a book being published, how do you, how would you characterize the before and after in, in your own sort of personal life? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, five, five years ago, as I was kind of hitting that wall, like, as I mentioned, I lived, I had put myself in yet another bubble, was raised in a bubble uh, and didn't communicate with the outside world and the real world. Uh, and then after the attempted murder, I really shut down and I put myself in a bubble and I, you know, I dated some, but uh, I, I really just, I just shut down. And so five years later, as I've been working through this healing and spending a lot of time with energy workers and, and healers and a lot of meditation, breath work, and all kinds of healing uh, practices, I've, I feel much freer, much more open. I'm able to talk about the different things more. You know, before, for example, when I tried to tell my family about the mob, the mafia-style family that I worked for and what they did, and my family's all from Oklahoma, uh, from a small town in Oklahoma, you know, not involved in the corporate world, certainly not involved in organized crime. You know, that's all on TV. So when I tried tried to explain, and I was so sick, I was very, very physically sick for such a long time from the poisons. And when I tried to tell my family, they just, they would look at me like I was crazy. And I, uh, uh, it, that made me feel really bad that they couldn't understand. And it made me feel like maybe they didn't believe me. 
And so, you know, we've been able through the process to have a lot of validation from people that I used to work with at that company uh, who helped support me um, emotionally and mentally during the writing of the book and especially during the publishing of the book. Uh, so I would say it has really opened up my world to be able to communicate better, to be able to talk about things. And really now where I stand today is it's, it's now time for me to start helping other people. And I do feel like I have that platform to be able to help people heal, to put into practice some of the things that I did so that they are, they get out of that survival mode, because that's where I was for decades living in just survivor mode mode and not thriving. And once I realized, what am I doing? Like, this is my life. This is my only life. I have got to shake this off and, and heal and move forward. And so that's really where I'm at today is, and that's such a blessing, even though I don't like to use that word because it, has religious undertones to it, but it is such a blessing to really heal to that point that I feel like now I'm ready to really dig in and help people and, and hopefully help them heal to learn how to thrive. I'm going to ask you a question that I can only um, characterize as being a little woo woo. <laughs> and, um, and, and that is, you know, there, there is this notion out there and I think this is easy for people who have not been through what you've been through to, to say, but it's something that I, 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 it's a theme I'm hearing over and over and over again, which is things don't happen to you. Things happen for you. And I'm curious as to how like a statement like that lands with you. Do you, when you, when you look back at all of these, you know, challenges and that's putting it lightly, I realize that you faced in life. Can you point to like, these things happening for you in a way versus happening to you? Hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that's not possible, but I don't think I'm there yet. Uh, yeah. I, I do believe that there are potentially, you know, obviously living through so much childhood trauma raised the bar for me on my threshold of, of being able to handle more and being able to accept um, things that the normal person would say, this is too crazy. This is out of control. You cannot continue to be in my life. So it raises the bar for ridiculousness and, and abuse. And so you have a higher threshold for that. Um, and so I think that potentially set the stage for me as an adult to be able to take more than I should and accept more because of what I'd been through. Uh, I don't think that things happened to me. I don't think there was a purpose for everything that happened to me. Um, I just don't because I, I feel like, I feel like I was born very strong and that's what got me through everything. But I don't really see a whole lot of benefit of so many of the traumatic things that I've been through. I don't feel like it's really made me who I am. I think who I was was always that person that helped me survive these things. Uh, but I don't, I don't think I am the person I am because, you know, I had an abusive mother and men mental illness all around me growing up. You know, I had a mentally ill stepsister. I had mentally ill uncles, both who were committed on my mother and father's side who died in the institutions in their seventies, tremendous amount of mental illness growing up. So I just, I am very thankful for my inner strength uh, because I really do believe that's what got me, got me through. And now you can, um, you know, as you mentioned, use it to help other people, uh, help other people get through what they're doing. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate training for you, 
Um, but, but perhaps other people will be the beneficiary of it. So, well, and that's uh, really what, what, that was the pinnacle for me deciding to publish is, you know, I just kept thinking about all I've survived and how many times I've escaped death. And there are a number of times there's more in the book than what we've talked about. There's even more than what's in the book. Uh, and I just kept thinking, there's got to be a reason why I'm still alive. You know, so many times I could have died and yet here I am. And I have just an incredible life. I have an incredible pool of friends. I have a wonderful family for the most part. Uh, I have a great career. I, I'm, I'm just very fortunate. So I just knew there, there had to be a reason why I was still here and still thriving, not stuck in my just surviving mode. Uh, and I finally decided maybe it is to share my story. Maybe my story will help people. And I've just gotten incredible feedback on the book, uh, on how it people how how it's helped people in in various stages and ways. And you know that's what I that's what I love. That's it has made the whole process worth it. Yeah. So there's there's your uh, there's your payoff. Um, or part of it anyway. I mean, I know there's not a big monetary payoff when it comes to, you know, right. it always amazes me when, when people say, Oh, Mike, you know, you, you've written eight or nine books. Uh, you know, you must be, uh, enjoying a nice, comfortable life. I'm like, I don't know if you know how the economics of the publishing right. industry work that well, but that's right. I break it down for people. I, you know, when people say to me, Oh, you're going to retire now, or, you know, you're making a ton of money on the book. I'll, I break it down for them. I'm a numbers person. Numbers are my thing. So I'll take them through. And I said, so here's my net. And so I would have to sell this many books to even make it make make sense. You, you really do it because you love it or there's a, a real purpose behind it. I think um, not because it's going to make you a lot of money. Yeah. And it sounds like you, uh, you know, you found, um, you know, part of your purpose anyway in helping other people with the, the decision to publish the book. So that's uh a wonderful thing. Um, and you mentioned reception has been, uh, has been positive for, for the book. It has, it's been incredible. I, I should note that all the names have been changed. All the names of the guilty have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> uh, I've changed the city names. I've changed, you know, all of that in w with the hopes that, you know, no one can really track down what company it was that I worked for because my goal in publishing this was not to out that company. Uh, it was to share my story and my experience. Um, so, so as people read it, uh, you'd have a hard time digging into really where I really lived and where we really operated because it's all, it's all been changed. It's all been changed. Well, very good. Well, you know, Kendra, this has been um, just a, a fascinating conversation for me. And uh, I'm curious if, if people want to reach out to you and, um, and, and touch base, I mean, do, do you have, I mean, I know you want to sort of maintain, you know, part of your anonymity, I'm sure, but are, are you active on social media? Do you have a website you can share with the audience if they want to learn sure. more? Sure. You can reach out to me on my website, KendraPettyOfficial.com or my Instagram, KendraPettyOfficial or same for the Facebook. So I, I and I'm on LinkedIn, Kendra Petty. All right. And uh, my last question is always uh, the trickiest one for some people to answer. Um, if you could go back in time and, and whisper some words of advice into uh, the younger Kendra's ears, what would you tell the younger Kendra Petty? Uh, you know, I, I guess it depends on how young I am. If it were pr prior to my brother, uh, my brother's death, and I would say don't, don't cross that highway. Uh, if it were later in life, I would say, uh, do not take that job 
with that ZVL company. I named them ZVL in the book as an acronym, but uh, do not take that job with ZVL. Those are those are the two things that if I can, you know, my marriage was catastrophic, but you know, I feel like I helped her and her daughter in certain ways, and I'm still still have a relationship with the daughter, and you know, feel very bad for my my ex wife. So that that makes me sad, but you know, I wouldn't. It'd be nice to change that, but I think if I were going to change anything and warn warn myself of anything, it would be don't take that job. All right, very good. Well, Kendra, thank you so much for stopping by, uncorking your story, and letting me uncork yours. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.